Like I think we have to get to a place where we take any excuse off the table when it comes to doing anti-racism work. Take all the excuses. Give yourself no excuse, right? So that you can speak truth to power. You can move from being passive to being active, from being apathetic to being empathetic, putting yourself in other shoes, you know, getting to a place where you can, you refuse to be a bystander. Some conversations are hard to have, especially when it comes to racism and sexism. For us immigrants, we sometimes don't know what to say and how to say it, or even don't know how to respond to certain comments. Maybe culturally, we were raised to say something in a way, but it's not accepted here in the States. That's why I invited Mami Afin Yelbertsai, who is an internationally recognized thought leader, passionate advocate for women and girls, on the show today. She's currently serving as the board member to many women and youth organizations, including African Women's Development Fund, Days for Girls Ghana, Women Leaders for the World, and COCO 360. She has been recognized as one of the 18 African feminists to know for Harriet and been featured in Leading Ladies Africa and Afro Ellie magazine. In this episode, she shares her journey from Ghana to States, what it was like to step out of her comfort zone and be an African woman in the States, France, Guatemala, and how these many incidents that happened to her fueled her inner curiosity and passion to tackle racism, sexism, and discrimination. So go ahead, grab your cup of tea, and join me in this episode of Empowering Conversations. Hello and welcome to the Empowering Conversations podcast, a place to get inspired, challenged, and empowered by stories of immigrants who build their success from zero. I'm your host, Mehran. First of all, thank you so much for Mami Afin to be on this podcast and to accept my invitation. I'm so lucky to have been introduced to you by Tabitha, who's a great friend and a um, and one of our guests. I am so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to learning and sharing and um, just growing, you know, because life is all about growing. So that's very true. So can you tell us about your immigration journey? If you want to take us back to your life back in Ghana, please feel free to do so. I always say that for me, leaving Ghana at an early age uh, to come is rooted in three big principles. The first principle for me is the principle of bold choices. Um, because I made a very bold choice when I was finishing high school and I told my mom I wanted to experience a different form of education. I wanted to broaden my horizon. And so while, you know, 
naturally after high school, you pick uh, universities and, and go into, I chose to uh, apply to schools abroad. And initially I was gonna to go to England uh, because you know, Ghana is the former British colony, you know, all those colonization stuff. Um, and so a lot of our educational system and programs are sort of um, mirrored with the, the British system. And so most people would go to England first, right? And so I said, I was gonna go, I did everything, got into school. And then when I went to the embassy at the British embassy, they told me, I don't look like I'm a genuine student. So that meant I had to retrace my steps and I stayed home for a whole year and had to start all over the process again. And that was when I decided that I wanted to come to the US um, to study. So I went through some programs. Um, at the time at the US embassy, they had a program called the United States Information Service. And you could go through there to learn about US universities and colleges. And um, there, there's this amazing, amazing woman who, would, who was a guide for all of us. We call her Auntie Nancy, Mrs. Keteku, Nancy Keteku, Auntie Nancy sort of supported all of us. So I went through that process and you know, long story short, I finally got my visa and came to college in Iowa. So my entry into the US was mostly through education. I wanted to further my education and then broaden my horizon, um, you know, through a different lens and through a different angle. And so, and to leave home was a bold choice. Directly connected to bold choice is this idea of curiosity. I always have been one very, one curious kid. kid. I'm always asking questions. I, I always want to know why. I always want to go behind, you know, what I'm seeing, you know, I want to go be, be beneath the surface. So I'm always asking questions and, you know, I've always been curious. And so that curiosity was what, you know, provoked and informed the bold decision that I wanted to experience. And um, the other thing is, you know, just community. Now my husband, you know, he also came to um, college here. So he had been here for a longer period. And so at that time we were, you know, um, sort of engaged, betrothed to each other. And so um, I, having that community here, you know, with somebody who had gone through the system was a powerful experience. And he was so helpful. He became more of a guide and everything for me. So. I'm grateful for that um, uh, because he had gone through the whole system and so he could walk me through and help me to avoid certain pitfalls. And of course I had some family, you know, uh, my aunts, you know, and other, and, and, the, and the beautiful community I found when I was in college, I had others that were in high school with me in Ghana and we all ended up in the same college. And so those three things definitely um, really helped me, you know, in terms of my immigration story. And that actually opened the door for other points of connections. Because coming to the US, um, I studied languages and that meant I had to, you know, do a, a study abroad. And so think about it as an international student studying, you know, in the US from, from Ghana, I ended up living in France as well. So you left Ghana, 
you came to the States and you um, studied languages. Then did you go to France? So I came, went to college. I majored in French and Spanish. As a French major and a Spanish minor, you have a requirement to do a study abroad in a country where French is the official language that they speak. So as part of my study abroad, I lived in France and I enrolled through a program called the IES program, right? Institute of um, International Education Studies, something like that. And so I went to, I lived in France, went through, you know, lived with a French family and it's part of your immersion into the language. So this is still while I was in school, this was in my junior year. So that semester, I wasn't on campus. I lived in France, but it was still part of being in college. And then in addition to that, because I minored in Spanish, I lived in Guatemala, which is in Central America and lived with a family. And I did that through another international um, education program. Um, so that's, that's how that happens. And so I did all of that between in my junior year and then my senior year, I came back to campus and went through my senior year and graduated. So it's all connected to the program that we do. So for each um, program, how long you lived in France or Guatemala? In France, I lived for a whole semester. I was there for a whole semester. Wow. And then in Guatemala, uh, because it's my minor, I lived there for a month. Okay. With the with the with the with the family, yeah, I had a host family in host in both both places. So I'm just curious how how did you feel the difference between the home country, America, France, and Guatemala? I know these were the depth of it is different, the length of it is different, but I'm just curious what was some differences that you felt going through that journey, you know, in a very short period of time? No, it was interesting because coming to the U.S., you know, um, there were so many things that I, I thought about the U.S. that once I got here, I was like, oh my God, this is not true. So I had to deconstruct some of those misconceptions. Um, in Iowa, there were all kinds of questions that people would ask you. You know, there was different forms of subtle and overt racism and some of the ignorance uh, that a lot of people had. And I remember people, one of the questions that you would get was, um, how did you get here? And I'm like, what do you mean, how did I get here? I'm here, like, how do you get to anywhere? How do you travel? And then they'll be like, oh my God, you speak such good English. And I'm like, huh? What do you mean I speak such good English? Like, don't you know your history? You know, or they would ask questions like, did you ever live in a house? You know, questions like that. And at some point I got asked those questions so many times and I started to try and tell, sort of make fun of it, you know, a bit. So people were asked, how did you get here? I said, well, I called the Eagle. I sat on the back of the Eagle and I flew and I crossed the Atlantic Ocean and I got here. There you have it. 
Or they would say, okay, did you live in a house? I said, no, I live on a tree. I'm on the first branch. The American ambassador is on the second branch. The third branch is very, very open. So anytime you're visiting, just let me know. I will, I, I will give it to you for free, rent free. You don't have to worry. But it was a way to, uh, you know, poke fun, but at the same time teach people, you know. And like, if you if you didn't get that I was I was really being sarcastic, then it tells me a lot about where you are. And then I remember even one professor coming to me and saying, oh, since English is not your first language, take all the time you need to write this exam. Sometimes even working in the cafeteria, you know, you'll be working with another white student, you know, and you are having conversations and, you know, like we are talking now and we are having all kinds of conversations and the moment like you step outside of that space, when they would see you, they would pretend like they, did, they never met you, you know? And so I think one of the things I learned, you know, from Iowa is just, I built resilience, first of all. I learned a lot to speak up and speak my truth and challenge stereotypes. And I learned to embody you know, things about myself that will break down and dismantle the stereotype and the single narrative of what they say about Africans and or of a black person. And interestingly, when I lived in France, there were there were similar, similar things, right? Because the imperial system, you know, the imperialistic system is the same. So I remember in France, um, one of my in my host family, one of the kids had come and asked my host mom, why is she so dark? Did she eat too much chocolate? You know, I remember when my host family was speaking, picking me up, you know, so once you get to France and you get to the center, your host family that you are connected to will pick you up. And I remember my host parents picking me up and there were other host families who were picking up their students. And they were looking at my host family with some kind of like pity because they, they got the black girl. I was just so blessed to have a host family that um, loved me and understood and saw beyond that. I'm still in touch with my host family. My host sister writes to me, you know, in fact, both of my host parents passed away um, about two years ago or so, uh, but you know, much they were very they were much older, so they they lived a full life, right? And then one other example that I would tell you is in France, I took a class. It's a pedagogy class where you would teach English um, to French students. Everybody who was taking that class had been placed, you know, so they would place you in a school. But three weeks had passed and they had not placed me. And I was wondering, why aren't they placing me? So I went to the administrator and I said, you know, I don't understand why I haven't placed. And she said, well, you know, we don't know if you can speak good English. You know, since you are not American, um, you'd have to lie and say you've lived in America for so long. And maybe that will make the people comfortable to know that we are bringing them somebody who has lived in America for a long time. 
in Guatemala, because of my own story, I was drawn to some of the indigenous communities that were there. So I did my thesis on the Mayan community. I formed deep relations because I could see them and they could see me. I understood where they sat and where I sit as a black person, as an African and as a woman. And so I formed really deep bonds with, with a lot of the, one of my teachers, she had, um, she was of Mayan descent and we had this strong bond when I'll go to her home. You know, I, I have pictures and beautiful pictures of all of that, but I, it resonated for me and I was drawn and my thesis was on that, raising awareness and highlighting the disparities that, you know, other communities face because of how we look at power and privilege and access and who gets it and who decides and all of that. And so I saw all of these things happening live, right? And like the microaggressions, you know, the discrimination, the racism, you know, all of those things. And I saw, so I saw those things were overt. Sometimes they were subtle, you know, from just how somebody will look at you just, just because you are black or you're a dark skinned person, you know, what they would think about your intellectual capacity, you know, all of those things I saw all of it. So all of those things have informed a lot of my work. And as we are sitting in a period where racial tensions are even growing, I can draw on those experiences. So those experiences are very important to me and they have been formative and very crucial to my own education, to my own growing up, because I have seen um, what it means to be performative um, in your approach to dismantling some of this power and privilege and racism and all of those things and what it means to be authentic. Living in a foreign country, working alongside people from different backgrounds, I'm sure many of us can relate with the comments mommy Affen heard. I know I have, and at times I wish I was able to address them differently. In fact, standing up to the comment or ignoring them entirely were the only ways I knew how to respond for a very long time. That's why the rest of the conversation today is eye-opening and crucial for us immigrants. After you listen to this episode, leave us a comment about how it impacted you and share it with your friends. I also recommend listening to our 15th episode where Fred, a biotech CEO, talks about growing despite his accent. Another valuable episode is our 22nd, where Mastone talks about creating her leadership advantage as a Middle Eastern woman. Both these episodes are valuable and have been downloaded many times. But for now, let's focus on Mommy Affen's suggestions and her dance move. There is a fine line between racism lack of knowledge, right? Um, discrimination, microaggressions. Someone could be from another culture, just, just, just lack of knowledge, they might say something. And 
me as an individual, I'm a Middle Eastern woman, right? I could take it in as aggression. I could take it in as racism. I could, you know, take it in as discrimination. But in reality, the person who talked about me had no intention, right? It was just lack of knowledge. Where do you define that line? Where do you say, okay, this is racism? This is lack of knowledge. There are two things that come up for me with the question around where we draw the line. There is ignorance, right? And then there is arrogance, right? When somebody is ignorant, but they are, op- they are teachable, there's a difference, right? When somebody comes and says something stupid, and then let's say, you speak up and you correct them. And they say, oh, I really did not know that. My bad. How can I do better? And they take a consequential step to educate themselves, to make shifts, to become an ally, to move from the performative to authentic, to be real in their pursuit of what is right and what is respectable and what is dignified in how you treat people, in in really understanding what values are important for me to embody just as a human being. So when you are ignorant, but you are also teachable and really taking the right steps to learn and grow and understand and put yourself in other people's shoes and then apply yourself and commit yourself to make a difference. That is where I draw the line. But when the flip side is you are arrogant and ignorant at the same time, and it means you may be somebody say, you know, what you said there, it really hurt me or it's not okay what you said. And the person's response is, well, that is who I am. It is what it is. I'm just going to take, you know. Then you know that that person is not committed or dedicated to making a difference. Angela Davis has a quote that I love. She says, in a racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist. You have to be anti-racist, right? And so when we think about all these terms that we use, microaggression, racism, discrimination, sexism, all of that, it is not you saying I am not for racism. It is you saying I stand against anything that portrays another person as lesser than, that disrespects, that takes away their dignity as a human being. It is not enough. And often people are saying, oh, I have good intentions. Good intentions are not enough. Even getting to a place where you have guilt, guilt that is not followed by consequential, practical, or authentic action is useless. If you, if you don't name and acknowledge, you can't even begin to heal and address. If you don't even name and acknowledge, you say, oh, this is the issue you haven't even started the journey. And so we can't heal what we don't name and acknowledge. It's hard work, you have to do the hard work, right? Don't expect other people 
to always be your strength. I am not your strength. Don't come asking me stupid questions when you know how to find the information, especially given the environment. You have access to all kinds of information. So you know how people say ignorance is bliss? Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is ignorance. And it's, it can be costly. Like I think we have to get to a place where we take any excuse off the table when it comes to doing anti-racism work. Take all the excuses. Give yourself no excuse, right? So that you can speak truth to power. You can, be, you can move from being passive. You can move from being passive to being active, from being apathetic to being empathetic, putting yourself in others' shoes. You know, getting to a place where you can, you refuse to be a bystander, becoming a co-conspirator. You know, the late John Lewis said, make good trouble. So when somebody comes and they say, oh, I'm ignorant, I don't know. I'm like, make good trouble. When was the last time you made good trouble? Making good trouble means you are a co-conspirator. You are breaking down the status quo. You are taking consequential action and you are taking every excuse off the table until my brother and my sister can be seen as the human they are. I am not going to be quiet because your silence and your ignorance becomes complicit. So, you know, it's a very beautiful question you ask. I mean, that goes very deep into, and I'm sure we can talk more and more about it, but it goes very deep into some of these things, but I am at a place where I'm like, there's no room for ignorance anymore. There's no room to have excuse anymore. We all have, there are so many things we can do from the littlest to the biggest. It doesn't even have to be big. It could be even within your own family. When you hear that somebody is saying something that is not right, whether it's about Muslims or Christians or black people or Asians, if it doesn't sit well, speak up, speak truth to power in love and in kindness and in respect, but by all means, say something. Uh, something that came up as you were talking so passionately about these issues that I also am very passionate about um, was that it is not only the role of the listener to be open toward the change, but also it's the role for all of us. We have to also spend the time and the energy to educate others. That's right, that's right. So at the heart of it fundamentally, it goes down to elevating your own awareness of what it means to be kind, to be empathetic, to show honor, to show respect, to show love, to ensure that there's justice, to ensure that people feel like when they are with you, they belong, right? I think more than anything else, the most important thing is to have courage. It's like sometimes you, you don't have to, and, and the thing is you don't have to have a PhD to say what is right and what is what, 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 what has justice and what dismantles these kinds of hate, right? You, you don't need a PhD to do that. You just need a heart. You just need to be a human being 
understanding that if these words are coming from my mouth, how does the words that are coming from my mouth impact the other person who is hearing it? It's, it's just basics. It's just the basics of who we are. Maya Angelou has a quote that I love, 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 love. She says, people may forget what you said. People may forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. And I think for a lot of us, at the end of the day, it comes to courage. Courage, courage, courage. Maya, my angel, I love my angel, you know, she's my ancestor, you know, as a black woman, I honor who she is and everything she's done so that people like me can also stand and speak up the way I'm doing now. And she says, without courage, it is, in, it is impossible to live any other virtue, the virtue of respect, of dignity, of kindness. Without courage, you can't do any of those things. So I think what we need right now in the world is courage, the gift of courage. And if, and I, I, I strongly believe that courage is contagious and courage ripples. So if you are in a space where you can afford to courageously speak up, you never know what that ripple will be. Courage is contagious. That's what we need. To create a future that equality is no longer our concern, we need to increase our awareness. The three books that Mommy Affen suggested for all of us to read were one, How to Be an Anti-Racist by American author and historian Ibram Kendi, two, We Come as Girls, We Leave as Women by Krishanda Lee Perez, and three, The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction by Justin Whitmill Early. I also suggest you listen to the podcast Silence is Not an Option by Don Lemon and read my all-time favorite book, Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. While these are some resources to increase your awareness, as Mommy Affen mentioned, you need to be courageous. You need to be able to sit through the discomfort and you need to compassionately care and raise the awareness of the world. We're in this together, and lack of knowledge is no longer a good excuse. In a professional environment, how would you address a racist comment or a sexist comment gently? Because a lot of times you have to be very cautious about you know, what you're doing and what you're saying. How would you address that gently? For a long time, especially for people who, are, who have experienced oppression, this idea of be nice about it, you know, when somebody says something, be nice about it, you know, or let's tolerate each other. You know, there are some words we use, you know, I'm just going to tolerate this, you know, I don't want to rock the boat. There's an elephant in the room, we all know it, but you know, let's just gaslight our way through. Let's just, you know, sweep it under the rug and let, you know, so a lot of people who have been at the receiving end of what racism is, of what oppression is, have internalized so much. As a black woman, I can't tell the number of times that 
you've had to hunt yourself back basically, right? And just take it and take it and take it and take it and take it because we are all socialized to be like, you know, let's make, the, you know, we don't want anybody to be uncomfortable. One of the things I've heard these days, like when I'm talking to, you know, anybody and you raise the issue of racism or oppression, they don't want to go there because it makes them uncomfortable. It's like, I am so uncomfortable. Can we just stop talking about this? But where your comfort comes in, my oppression continues. So it, it has nothing to do with how you answer somebody gently. It has nothing to do with that. It's about seeing that on the other side of it is somebody who has experienced all kinds of issues and they've internalized these things for a long time. And right now, we, there, is, there is an opportunity for us to step into the discomfort. So it's not about being gentle. It's about how are you going to sit in the discomfort of these difficult conversations? And until we can get to that place where we say, I'm just going to sit in here. I'm just going to be quiet and watch and listen and learn and hold space with others. Because for most people who are expecting you to be gentle to them, they've been living privilege and they've enjoyed the benefits of certain privilege for a long time. They even don't have any idea of what it takes for me as a black person to even speak up and say, you know what, this is hard. So recently I was on a call with a friend and you know, it's somebody I respect, we are very good friends and we are talking and as I was talking, the person just slighted me in a way that was so hard. And I could just feel inside me, my, my whole body just went, and I was just sitting there and I was supposed to bring my intellectual capacity and everything into this conversation. And I was just sitting, I was like, this is not sitting right. This is not sitting right. I can't, I can't. And usually I wouldn't speak up, right? I would just be like, you know, I just don't, I just want to keep the peace. We don't want to rock the boat. Let's be nice about it. We don't want to make anybody uncomfortable, you know, da, 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 da. But I was like, no, no. We can't continue this, way. otherwise we would never have a headway out of this. So it took a lot of courage and I, I had to like think through it in the moment as it was happening. And then I just spoke up and said, you know, before we move on, can I please say something? And I had to call her out at the same time I called her in. So that might be an easy way to answer your question about gentility, but I don't think that's the question we should be asking. You know, it's not about being gentle. It's about how do we call people out and call them in at the same time? And the response from that person, it's a two-way thing because I can be gentle in my answer and I can be respectful and dignified and empathetic, right? But if you are not, there's no reciprocity, it's useless. I'm wasting my time and we are not learning anything, right? So I, I, said, to, I said to the person, I just need to address it. I just feel like you just gaslighted me and I used the right words, I named it. And so sometimes 
to be able to respond in a gentle way means you name what it is that is happening. Don't beat about the bush. Don't sugarcoat it. Name it. Call it for what it is. So I just, I said, I feel like I've been slighted and I've been just, just, I was, this is a gaslight moment for me. And I can't continue in, 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 in authenticity to bring myself to this conversation if I don't speak it up. I did. And what followed was a beautiful interaction. You know, the person acknowledged what I said. The person showed empathy. The person spoke her truth of where she was coming from. So what I did was to open the lines of communication for us to understand where each of us was coming from. And by the time we we're done, we were just like having big laughs and, and what, and, and what, the response the person gave meant that she saw, the person saw me and the person allowed me to, to validate what I'm saying, right? And taking a very practical action. So it's about stepping out of our comfort zone, I think. It's not about being gentle, but it's about how do I step out of my comfort zone to even speak up and address and name that thing. And then the other person also stepping out of their comfort zone to respond so that we can move forward in a very authentic and consequential manner that leads to transformation. Does it make sense? Yes, you said it absolutely beautifully. Um, gentleness is very... Um, is a gray zone. It's very yeah. relative. Yeah. So you you mentioned something beautiful and you said calling in. How do you call people in when you mention how you feel, but they draw the barrier? They don't want to talk about it, but it is an important matter to talk about. How do you call that person in? How do you how do you continue the conversation and get to the point? I mean, I think it's just the dynamics of communication. And it's, you call people in first by just sharing your own story, speaking from your truth, right? And of course, that's where your values come in. You know, um, this work with anti-racism is hard work um, and it requires all kinds of elements. You know, there are moments when you have to be hot <laughs> you know, bring the fire. There are moments when you have to bring the water. There are moments when you have to bring the wind. There are moments when you have to just whisper. There are moments when you have to, you know. So for me, I look at it, you call people in through a dance, through the idea of a dance. So you call them in by knowing when you step forward, when you step back, when you step aside when you hold your ground, right? So depending on what is going on in the context, you bring all of who you are, you bring your empathy. You also bring your anger, you bring your fears, you bring your, by being real, you call people in by first being real and just unapologetically sharing who you are. So in the example I gave, by sharing your feelings, tell your story. So instead of saying, you know, and you said this to me, so I might say, you know, when I heard it said, or when I heard you say this, this is how I felt about it. You know, I felt disrespected. I felt like you just were gaslighting me. 
I felt. So you are talking about, this is how I felt. And I'm speaking authentically from where I am sitting. And when I bring myself vulnerably like that, if you can't see that, then you, if the problem is on you. So we call people in by bringing our, our full selves, by bringing vulnerability, by sharing where we are. Tell your own story. Don't tell anybody else's story. How did this impact you? This is how I felt when, you know, this conversation went this way. When this was said, this is how I felt. And this is what I need. We have to, we call people in by telling them also what we need. This, like right now in this moment, I don't think I can continue this conversation. I need to take a break. I need to breathe a little because something was said that is traumatizing me right now. Something was said that is triggering me right now. And I, I think a lot of us have, have learned to internalize. And for me these days, one of my mantra is kind, not nice. Kind, not nice. I'm done with being nice because being nice is just tolerating people and tolerating people, it's not a virtue that I want to do. I don't want to tolerate you. I want to sit in empathy with you. I want to sit in compassion with you. You call people in by being kind, not nice. And I love the part that you said, you know, when you talk about yourself, how you perceive it, how you took it in, the other person, the barrier immediately, you know, rumbles because or shatters because you're not pointing at them, blaming them. Exactly. You're taking, you're owning your feeling. That's right. That's that that was a very fine line. Yeah. It's about what the, the word I use is like disarm people from becoming dis- defensive. You know, what we do is just as important as how we do it. Sometimes, you know, you can call people out and shame them, but it doesn't take you anywhere. So when you call people in, you know, it, it changes, it shifts the dynamics of the communication, of the conversation, where people feel like, okay, this person is just being real. I see you. 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 You know, and 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 those things become contagious and they ripple, you know? Time and knowledge is the most valuable gift someone can give you. And you gifted me a huge amount of it. And I'm, and I'm forever grateful for that. It's been a pleasure um, to be here. And um, I, I would say, speak your truth and make good trouble wherever you are. This is the season for us to all to make good, for us to make good trouble. So speak your truth, make good trouble and kind, be kind, kind, not nice, kind, not nice. We need more of that. As I'll be dancing through many difficult conversations, I will think about this episode and how Mommy Affin taught me to step forward, step to the side, step backwards or stand my ground when I know something is wrong. What was your favorite takeaway? I know it's easy to jump from one episode to the next, from this one to the 15th or 23rd that I recommended. But before you do, I invite you to sit in your silence and think. 
Think about your takeaway. Think about your next action toward dismantling racism and sexism that is going on around you. Think about ways you could help others get paid equally for their equal work. Think about how your comments can hurt other human beings. Think about the future of our children. As hard as it is, sit through your silence and think. And then plan your next action. Because without an action, all these conversations are meaningless. Thank you for being a kind, proactive listener and not only doing something about racism, but also sharing this episode with your colleagues or your family. If you haven't yet write us a review, please take a moment to do so. Tell us what you learned in this episode. I look forward to reading your comments and improving our show. And until the next episode of Empowering Conversations, we hope you stay home, you stay safe, and you receive your shot of hope.